You're listening to Conservation Connection. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. We're a husband and wife team running an environmental education nonprofit that's focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals working to protect our planet and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho. The Sun Valley Forum is an intergenerational meeting of forward-thinking professionals that come from a diverse range of disciplines. These experts are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the fight for our future, and they've all come together at the Sun Valley Forum to share ideas and to collaborate on solutions for a greener tomorrow. Let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys. You probably thought the episode was starting, and it will in 30 seconds. But first, we wanted to let you know that we're taking a four-week break starting on July 16th, 2023. We'll be back with our 100th episode and another awesome season on August 13th. This is your chance to catch up on some older content and send us your ideas for what you'd like to hear in the next season. Now let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. We're here at the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho, 2023, our second year out here. We're getting some great content, very excited about the stories we're catching, and in particular, very excited for this interview. We're with Deanna Cohen. She's the CEO and co-founder of Plastic Pollution Coalition. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We're so glad to have you on the show. I want to kick it off a little bit with just... What is the work that you're doing? I mean, I think it's pretty clear from the title, right? Plastic Pollution Coalition. But specifically, what is the work you guys are doing? Yeah. So, uh, and it's funny you say that because some people think that we're pro-plastic, which is interesting. We <laughs> definitely not. I, I was like, no, there's the the word pollution is in it's there too. It's not a good thing. Um, we, we were co-founded in 2009. Um, we have grown over, we're in our 14th year right now, but we've grown and we've evolved. Uh, initially, we started out just as a, building a global alliance of different kinds of groups, both organizations and businesses, all interested in addressing plastic pollution or stopping plastic pollution. And the parameter to join us in the very beginning was that you call it plastic when appropriate, and when appropriate, you call it plastic pollution as opposed to marine debris, litter, rubbish, waste, or garbage. Um, so that is how we began. And we have evolved. And we consider ourselves to be a communications and advocacy organization representing a an expansive global alliance working towards a more just, equitable, regenerative world free of plastic pollution and its toxic impacts. Well said. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So what made you, I can already tell in the couple of minutes we've been talking that you're very passionate about plastic pollution. What made you so passionate about it? When did this start for you? So I think it's a funny story. Um, I, in college, I was a biology major and my goal was to evolve, to do, to grow, to do preventative cancer research. That was based on having lived through, as a teenager, our mother being diagnosed with breast cancer, thinking that she was healing or getting better, 
having it metastasize and her pass away when she was 42. And what we were told is that the breast cancer she had was estrogen receptive. So I'm just going to say to you, when you're 17 years old, that doesn't really mean anything to you. I then attended UCLA. I began college as a university as a biology major with the goal to, to do preventative cancer research. In that quest, I also started realizing that I would need a PhD in order to be creative. And this was really tough for me because I grew up always calling myself an artist. And if you had asked me what I wanted to be when I was six or seven years old, I would tell you when I grow up, I'm going to be an artist. So I made a decision to transfer to the art department, think it, not exactly as a cop out, but thinking, oh, this is going to be like more of where I fit. Mm. And when I arrived there, I f and these are the polar opposite ends of the campus, the bottom of South Campus, the top of North Campus at UCLA. I arrive at the art department. All these people are walking around with a copy of a book called Chaos Theory that was written by James Gleck. And it's got this butterfly effect, you know, butterfly effect in it. It's all about fractals. So it's basically about creating visualizations from scientific data or numbers. That was really, really compelling to me. And when I got there, I thought, okay, I just found my people. Like, this is the right place to be. I also really wanted to um, bring an artist set of thinking to even the way I was approaching science and looking at science, which is thinking outside the box. That led me to graduating with a degree in art, beginning to make artwork as a painter, at some point starting to do some collage work with brown paper bags from the market that I was cutting up and sewing back together, and then adding some bits and pieces of plastic and plastic bags to that. And I remember the very first piece I made had, it was a bag that had come from a homeopathic pharmacy in Belgium, in Brussels. And it had an image of a dandelion printed on it with the name in Latin. And I thought, this is such a deeply ironic thing to me. What is this plastic bag made out of? At the time, I had no idea. But what is this bag made out of? Why does it have a botanical image of nature printed on it? And I'm going to cut this up and incorporate it into the piece that I'm making. And I did. And then I had this kind of epiphany. Oh, plastic. It's everywhere. It's so ubiquitous. I'm going to start working with plastic. Cut to, it's now I've been making art pieces, artworks, two and three dimensional pieces and sculptural pieces and installations out of plastic bags for just over 30 years. Wow. Wow. So in working with the material, I also then became a certified scuba diver. I was, I grew up near the Pacific Ocean in Southern California. So I was, you know, swimming a lot and body surfing, but I started learning to surf, learning to longboard. So I was spending more and more time in the ocean. And, I, and as my life was continuing, I was seeing more and more plastic every time I'd go to the beach and in the water. And so doing what everybody does, I think anybody who cares about the water, cares about the ocean, grabbing those bits of it, tying them to my bikini, tucking them into things, you know, bringing them out, looking for a garbage can to put them in and not giving it that much thought. But okay, I'm making artwork out of this material now. I'm seeing a lot of it in the ocean. And then I started hearing, it almost felt like a lone voice back in about I don't know, 2006, 2007. It was Captain Charlie Moore, Charles Moore, who founded Algalita and the Algalita Marine Research Institute. And he was saying, hey, people, we have an enormous problem going on right now. We have 
a great Pacific garbage patch that is forming in the Pacific Ocean in the northeastern Pacific gyre. And it is full of plastic. And I am seeing it every time I sail or motor my boat through this. We have a really big problem. Wake up. And so I started hearing him talk about it. I reached out to him. Make a long story short, I, when I finally got to meet him in person, I said, I have a plan I've come up with to go out and clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, Diana, you can't clean this up. You know, and my reaction was, hey, don't say that to me. And, and, and maybe even if you're right, maybe some kid will come along and they'll figure out how to clean it up. You know, don't dissuade every person who comes along because I really see a problem here and I'd like to at least try to raise awareness about it and do something about it. So my initial plan was to go out, clean up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch with, you know, a big cargo container and some decommissioned fishing trawlers. Uh, a crane, a cold molding machine, a chipping machine. I was talking to these guys who had a chipper. They were based in Utah and they could take up to 50% organic matter because I had learned that it had a lot of organic matter growing on it. Mm -hmm. So this is all back to the biology and the science and understanding, trying to understand this issue and what was happening. Like how can we scoop it all up? Yeah, I thought, I thought what I think everybody thinks. It's an island. It's floating on top of the water. You go to one place, you pick it up. It's gone. Oh, bing, bang, bing. <laughs> right. And that's Easy. not not the case at all. Not only is that not the case, but it is, you know, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch alone, and we have multiple oceanic gyres around the world, around the globe. Uh, they are all full of plastic. Uh, the ocean is constantly trying to vomit that plastic out on beaches and shorelines and windward sides of islands. In fact, the Hawaiian islands function almost like a, a sieve or a comb for one portion of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and Catching they're, they're covered with plastic all the time. Uh, but it's the plastic's not just floating on top, and it's not big pieces that we can just grab. It's also broken apart into smaller and smaller pieces. It's being ingested by the entire marine chain. It's in all the water strata. It's on the bottom of the ocean floor. We literally have no idea how much. And we've been dumping it in some form or another there for many, many years since you know this m material was created. Um, so, so yeah, so basically after talking to Charlie and some other wonderful folks who became my advisory board, including Dr. Sylvia Earle and David DeRothschild and Enrique Sala and Wallace J. Nichols, a lot of people who became the founding members and our scientific advisors when we did decide to create Plastic Pollution Coalition. So the idea behind Plastic Pollution Coalition was that we could bring together really diverse entities who were looking at different aspects of the problem and trying to figure out how to solve it. So not just looking at it as an ocean issue, looking at, because the ocean is one of the downhill points that it reaches, but beginning to look at the whole chain, understanding what is plastic made out of. 99% of plastics are made out of fossil fuels and petrochemicals and fracked and cracked gas. Your average person walking down the street doesn't no idea. Know that. No yeah. idea. So that's the first thing. That's a really important thing to know. Um, but but also looking at all the different solution points and source points. Where are they? Why don't we stop it before it gets out into the water? Why don't we stop it at the mouths of rivers? Why don't we go up the rivers? Why don't we stop it 
rather than dumping, burying everything in the environment, which we call landfilling, you know, or uh, dumping it on the sides of riverbanks uh, or in waterways, why don't we look at the stuff as valuable materials and uh, design it? We're going further upstream, design it so it doesn't become waste, garbage, rubbish, rubbish, plastic pollution, you know, right. uh, address it. And so just continuing to go up as we go up the, the, the chain, um, realizing that the chemicals that are used to make it, whether the carbon source is petroleum, fossil fuel based or a bio based, plant based source, that the additives like bisphenols, BPA or BPA substitutes, phthalates, uh, these are different chemicals that are added to make the plastic either rigid and transparent and translucent or phthalate supple, malleable, rubbery. These chemicals are bad for human health and they're bad for animal health. And they are leaching out into the environment and we're all ingesting them in our food, in our beverages, in our beauty products, in our healthcare products, in our cleaning products. We touch it. You know, what's the dermal like uptake of it? Because our skin is the largest organ on our body. We're wearing it in synthetic clothing. Like as soon as you open Pandora's box, that scary or just become knowledgeable, open your eyes to the issue, you begin to realize like how pervasive yeah it's pervasive it's insidious just insidious and um i wish it was not as big a deal as it is but it is yeah absolutely it's one of those things where it's so normalized right it is and i i think to play a little bit of devil's advocate here there are a couple of things that plastic is really really good at like in the medical field, when you need something to be sterile or there are particular uses for plastic that if plastic were to disappear from the face of the planet, there are some things that would be majorly impacted. But that in my mind, in no way warrants this widespread ubiquitous use of single use disposable, ultra consumeristic um, plastic waste that ends up, like you said, we don't know how much of it there is because it's impossible to measure it with with what we have available to us today right? It's just such a heavily ingrained part of our culture now. And it became so, so quickly that, you know, what can be done about it, I guess, is the question at this point. Well, I mean, it was also heavily marketed to us. And it, you know, even with watching universities and corporations and companies and banks make these commitments to divest from fossil fuels, they're not including taking a look at their use of plastic or production of plastic or how they use plastic. And often with food and beverages or beauty products or healthcare products, plastic is just used as the vessel, as the transportation for something, to deliver something. Um, The fact that it is leaching chemicals into the products, and then we're ingesting those products is utterly frightening to me. And, um, you know, I am, I am old enough to remember the milk being delivered to my family in glass bottles to our front door, and we lived in an apartment complex. Um, and, you know, I've met with lots of folks from different MRFs around the world who still, those MRFs shoved in the back somewhere still have bottle sterilization contraptions or dishwashers, like kind of industrial, you know, Mm -hmm. washing things to sterilize glass. And yet it seems like we break and shatter glass and send it back somewhere for it to be melted down again, which is much more labor intensive than just sterilizing it and refilling something locally. Right. Um, I mean, 
you know, not to say how much I love glass, because I've also broken some glass, but I mean, glass in general is not leaching any toxic chemicals right. into our food and beverages and beauty products and essentially into us. Um, and that makes it a wonderful material. Um, I also think food grade steel is a pretty wonderful material and it's already used in many, many restaurants and, you know, food service facilities. So I feel like what we're seeing is that plastic is also the petrochemical industry's plan B. And if anything, they used COVID and COVID lockdown as an opportunity to increase production. Yeah, because how many initiatives were ramping up in the 2018-2019 era of like reusable silverware, bring it with you or, you know, and then we get into this virus scare, which is, you know, it was a big deal, but it turned everything into like everything has to be sanitized. If we have prepackaged plastic solutions for it, then it is throw it, it away immediately. Right. Like and you don't have to deal with this, this process of it. And it, it was such a setback to so many waste reduction programs um, that it was it's really even right now, we're just now starting to see kind of whispers of those projects getting back up and running again. Yeah, I think even a lot of policy and legislation that was passed was put on hold the implementation. But now it's back up. Um, you know, I think one of the things that 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 is important is that people again, one, people don't know that plastic is made from oil and gas and petrochemicals and fracked and crack gas, they just don't know. So plastic is made from gas and oil. Where are those facilities located? And let's take a moment and look at the whole production chain, the whole cycle of plastic. It's basically polluting us and polluting communities across the United States and around the world from the point the you know, the wellhead, which is extractive point, the extraction through the production and petrochemical facilities and manufacturing, when we make plastic and pelletize it, then the production of that. Then if it's designed for single use, we use it for a very short amount of time, poisons us again. And then it's instantly a waste management issue. And oftentimes what happens to it, it's either placed into a landfill, which is basically dumping it into an area in our environment, or it is burned in some way. And we call that incineration. We often call it waste to energy, waste to fuel, lots of euphemistic ideas that sound, sound pretty good. But when we do those things, we poison ourselves again. And when you burn it, or even if when you turn it back into oil or diesel fuel or jet fuel, it's being burned and again, releases particulate pollution and dioxins and other chemicals, poisons us again. And if you look at that whole chain and where those facilities are located, they tend to be located in low-income communities and communities of color, indigenous communities, black and brown communities. And the economic injustice that is happening there and the fact that those neighborhoods and communities don't have the political voice or the ability to say no in the same way that a more affluent neighborhood might have the ability to say, no, we don't want this here. But funny though, even it's, these even go into more affluent neighborhoods. And in some of the neighborhoods where I've spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, it's there too, but it's disguised. Hmm. There's actually an oil well for many, many years, and it may in fact still be there on the field at Beverly Hills High School. 
in Beverly Hills in the middle of Los Angeles. And there was a class action lawsuit by a bunch of students who all came down with different kinds of cancer who were doing a lot of sports on the field. Oh, my gosh. So it's there. But it's also a few miles south from where I live in Hollywood, just in Baldwin Hills and that whole Inglewood oil field that is there, which, you know, pretty much all of us have been ignoring our whole lives because you drive through all of it to get to the airport. Right. But And you just, you never think about what the impact of that is. But now that I'm working with groups that are based in those communities from Stand LA to Liberty Hill Foundation and different groups there, it's helped educate me so that I can understand the true impact. And it's impacting all of us, whether we see it and it's right in front of our face or whether it's hidden and a few miles away from us. Right. Absolutely. So I definitely have heard you mention education as part of our solution here, right? Beyond education, for you and your team and the people that you all are working with, what do you see as other solutions to this plastic pollution problem? Yeah, so there are a lot of solutions. Um, it's pretty exciting, actually. <laughs> uh, and what we what we talk about, the work that we do, we educate, connect, and advocate. So one of the things we've been able to do as our coalition's grown, and just I just want to say to you guys, in the last five years, we've had a lot of businesses join us. Huge uptick. In the beginning, there were only a few businesses mm-hmm. that had joined us, and it was kind of unusual. Um, one was Natra Cares, which is doing, you know, um, menstrual products um, and doing them without plastic or plastic-free menstrual products. But in the last five years, we've really had a lot of businesses join us. And now we're about 50%, 50-50 businesses and organizations wow. from 75 countries around the world, which is just epically Amazing. awesome. Amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we're able to do is help connect them to each other, to collaborate with each other. We create guides. Uh, we create toolkits. We create, we're working on something that started out as a a toolkit and it was originally called the plastic no the global plastic reduction legislative toolkit and it's now and it's in a beta form and it's now going into its next more robust iteration and it will be called the global plastic laws database it's on our website you can sign up and use it right now. And it's a big evolution from when we first created the coalition in 2009, 2009, 10, 11. We had a very simple thing on our website, which is how to start a bag plastic bag ban in your town, how to start a polystyrene ban in your town, how to address plastic straws in your town. Those were very basic things we had in the beginning. This is much more robust mm-hmm. like to have a database where we're citing all the existing laws and policy, and people can actually look at them and look at the best versions and then replicate that yeah, replicate in their locality. It. Really exciting. So that's one tool that we've created. I'm, I'm very proud of, and it's a huge, you know, project. So that's ongoing. Yeah. We also have worked with, um, it originally came out of a Google Food Lab uh, meeting and some presentations we did there. We were part of an accelerator that now is outside of Google, and it's called the Understanding Packaging Scorecard. And the URL for it is the upscorecard.org. And this is a tool that we created. It's overseen by a group we call ourselves the SUMD group, the Single Use Material Decelerator. Nice. <laughs> I love that. And um, we oversee this tool, and this tool looks at six different parameters, 
and helps people do comparison or a company do a comparison of different kinds of pack, single use packaging materials. And what what's interesting for me about it is not only does it look at climate impact, but it looks at plastic pollution. And I'm not talking about weight for plastic. When people only look at weight, plastic looks like a really great solution because mm -hmm. it's very lightweight, more lightweight. Especially than, compared to glass. Right. Or many other materials. So, and, and definitely more lightweight than reusable materials, but it's a different concept, the whole, the whole right. infrastructure. So we look at plastic pollution, but we also look at chemicals of concern. And this made it a difficult tool to develop, but it's very important to look at. Once you start looking at that, other materials really pale in comparison, you know, for the health impact. So that's great. And that's a tool that is available to everybody. It's currently available for free and people can just sign up and use it. Fantastic. So if you guys are listening and you're, you're interested in all of this stuff that we're talking about, scroll under the show notes. I'm going to drop some links right there so you can go straight from listening to learning more ways for you to take action to stop plastic pollution. Um, we are very far from done with this conversation, but usually that <laughs> but comes in. At, usually that comes in at the end of the, the, sh the show. But um, yeah, if you guys are interested, scroll down. I'm going to make it real easy on you guys. So having an expert in the room on plastic, I would <laughs> I would love to get your take on um, sort of the rise of bioplastics, plastics that are derived from oils not extracted from the ground. Or derived from plant. Yeah, exactly. So so plant-based plastics. What are your thoughts? We haven't seen something that's advertised itself as a bioplastic yet that's a good idea. Not yet. We have seen companies that are part of the coalition who are working with seaweed, algae, mushrooms, mushroom mycelium, not adding plasticizing chemicals to what mm -hmm. they're doing, like phthalates or bisphenols. We are seeing plastic-free alternatives that they're able to pelletize and then utilize in existing plastic extruding machines that function very much like plastic. And those, I'm super hopeful about those being wonderful replacements. Um, it's a question also of people investing in those companies and helping those companies scale up. Yeah, absolutely. But th there's some really good good stuff happening. And I think that that's an important thing to talk about is that I think a, a plastic free or a plastic like substance free future, we lost sight of that a very long time ago. But if we're actively seeking replacements that don't come with the same trappings and issues of plastics, at least that's a halfway point towards a plastic free future, right? Well, I mean, what I would say is ultimately, we should stop using single use plastics and Absolutely. stop accepting them or asking for them if we have, you know, if we're given a choice. So, I mean, one of the things we've done with policy is straws only upon request, right. but also encouraging people on passing policy so that those straws will not be made of plastic. Right. So the problem's not straws. The problem is plastic straws. Right. 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 Just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And we have a lot of coalition members who make straws out of like a myriad of different materials, including hay, wheat, you know, uh, seaweed, algae, um, reeds, bamboo, stainless steel. And then there are different paper varieties as well. But there are a lot of different options if you do like straws or need a straw. I carry stainless steel straws with me, but I also am a pretty big fan of these seaweed algae straws that are made by Lollyware um, that 
they they they'll swell a tiny bit at the base when they've been in your iced tea or your drink for a while, but the, and they're only doing them in three colors that are all made from natural pigments. Uh, cool. They do them in like a black, a kind of cobalt blue, sea blue color, and um, a kind of uh, amber color. Are they reusable? Or well, just you, like biodegradable. You, you know, actually, you could reuse them, but I mean, you know, they're. I think they're intended for single use. Right. I wasn't sure since you yeah. mentioned the colors. I was like, whoa, are they yeah, reusable? No, I, That's crazy. I really like them. I really like them, and uh, yeah, they don't have any flavor or anything mm-hmm. like that. But I really. Oh, there's another company that. From Spain, that's doing like an edible straw that's kind of reminds me of Smarties or some kind of candy <laughs> like that. It's a little bit kind of citrus tasting and they have different flavors. Mm-hmm. I have never tried the strawberry because I'm allergic, but they, you know, they do like a lemon flavor and a strawberry flavor. Yeah. They do a couple of different flavors and those are neat. They're kind of, you know, they're, sh- they're sweet. Yeah. yeah. Add it to your cocktail or something. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it would be fun with like a sugary drink. Right. Um, but so there's a lot of cool stuff like that happening. Uh, but again, Penultimate, in my opinion, is reusables and thinking reusable. So one of the projects we got to work on, it took some time because, you know, COVID hit in the middle, was um, we worked with Yelp and we helped them come up with different, again, different parameters that you have to check off a box when you order food um, mm. from or, or when you're looking up a company to to order a meal from, you can look for particular parameters you can set in your Yelp settings. And that can include people needing to opt in if they want utensils. Right. Rather than those just automatically being sent out with every to-go order or every delivery order, you now have to ask for them. Because most people are ordering something for their home or for work and they don't already the they don't need it right so uh so that was really really fun to to work on with them yeah it's fun because this is sort of this really interesting confluence of like science and and having science back solutions but it's also like behavioral engineering right it's getting people to change their behaviors and figuring out how do we instead of you know if people are just going to do what's easy for them how do we make what's easy for them good for the planet and good for the reduction of plastic waste as opposed to this automatic like hey you ordered a salad you get three sets of plastic uh silverware that you're definitely just going to throw away because you're at your home i mean i'll give you a hack too which is if you have places that you are a regular customer at or you order from or you order to go for yourself or your family See if you can get into a conversation with those people and ask them if you brought your own steel or glass, you know, Pyrex, whatever containers in, if when you order something, they would be willing to put it in your own containers for you. And if they say no, then be prepared to just bring your own containers with you, order it, seat it at the table, scoop it into your own containers, click the top, shut on that, pay your bill and bring that stuff home. Yeah. So I've done that many, many times. And it's super fun. Like, <laughs> I, I look at this all as like, it, I don't know why I wake up so optimistic every day, but I'm like, oh, this is a challenge. You know, mm-hmm. I have found myself sometimes having to confess to people that I'm actually allergic to plastic. And that is the reason that I don't want something served to me in plastic. Mm-hmm. But it's partially true. Yeah, so. it's definitely not good for you. Yeah. Before we leave this episode, before we wrap this episode, I do want to bring up, um, we mentioned earlier, like the fight against plastic, right? It's a common term and fight against climate change, fight against this, that, whatever. 
And you were very specific of, no, don't use the word fight. That is not the word we want to use here. And so I want to hear more about why you're so passionate about that terminology and um, what you look at it as. Well, I just realized, we, you know, we've been doing this, we're in our 14th year as Plastic Pollution Coalition, and I realized pretty much influenced through a colleague of mine who works with us, Jackie Nunez, who founded an organization called The Last Plastic Straw, but she is now our policy uh, manager for Plastic Pollution Coalition. I realized in conversations with her that if we continue to use this kind of patriarchal warring language, then that implies that there's a winner and a loser. You know, we all believe that we can't afford to lose. And so if we shift the narrative away from using warring language, and, and you'd be surprised how much warring language we use for everything from strategy. And you're it, so used to it, right? Yeah, it's normal. It's been normalized. But if we move away from that and address this as a problem, as a challenge, as an issue that needs to be solved, that needs solutions, and we open our minds and look at all the different solutions that are available to us, then, frankly, we can win. And the winning looks like many different things. The winning looks like creating guides for people, incentivizing behavior change, changing the narrative in popular culture and film and television, changing policy and legislation, um, incentivizing the behaviors that we want. Um, it looks, it has many different faces. I love that. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so much for your perspectives today and just the expertise and the, frankly, the energy that you're bringing to this conversation is really refreshing. So thank you so much for being on the show with us today. You're welcome. I could also talk about this for about another two <laughs> hours straight. <laughs> and I feel like there are other guides that I should have mentioned to you. Can I mention? Yeah, that? absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's do a shout out section. Go okay. for it. Right. Yep. And we'll link everything in the show notes. So I was going to, you know, one of the projects that we worked on with another coalition member, they're called Made Safe and Made Safe Certified. Um, is we did a healthy baby guide and a healthy pregnancy guide. And they are both available online for free. You just sign up and you can download them. And what they really are, for example, the healthy pregnancy guide is really a plastic-free pregnancy guide. And not only is it really a plastic-free pregnancy guide, it's really a plastic-free living guide. And it goes room by room in your house and your garden and your place of work. And it's packed full of really great solutions. Well, I have two pregnant friends right now. Well, they're both of our friends. Um, but I will pass <laughs> that along to them. <laughs> so that is a super fun tool that we have. And we also just in the last couple years launched a new initiative, which is called Flip the Script on Plastics. So Flip the Script on Plastics in Film and Television. And we are working with content creators to change the narrative. So we've been working for a while with productions and sets behind the scenes and with music festivals and productions with musicians to get single-use plastics out of the production and single-use plastic water bottles and beverages out of the production backstage. But this initiative is really focused on getting it out of the narrative. I've seen this one. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. It's really cool. It is really cool. Yeah, I love it. And we're seeing a lot more of it now in scripted television and and even in unscripted television, but uh, and also in films. So it's a really exciting project. If people want to learn more, about, obviously, about any of these things, everything's on our website, which is plasticpollutioncoalition.org. 
And like I said, scrolling down to the show notes, I've got it linked right there along with some of these other things that we've talked about. So uh, definitely get a plastic out of your life. Oh, and you can also just take a pledge. You can take a pledge to refuse single-use plastics, which is a really easy in, and just come and learn about it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'm sure in the coming years, we'll have much more to catch up on. And best of luck on what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts helps other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to everyone working to protect our planet, and a big thanks to you for listening. See you next time.